Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 135. In this episode, we're talking about Jesus' enemies in Jesus films with Professor Adele Reinhardt. Professor Adele Reinhardt is professor in the Department of Classics and Religious Studies at the University of Ottawa, and she's the author of a number of books on Bible and film and Jesus and film, including Jesus of Hollywood with Oxford University Press and Bible and Cinema with Rutledge. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Brandon Hurlbert and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So Brandon, this was a lovely conversation with Professor Adele Reinhardt about Jesus's enemies. We uh, traversed a great number of Jesus films and a great number of depictions of various foes of Jesus, like Judas, the Pharisees, Caiaphas, Pilate, uh, the crowds. I mean, we were kind of all over the place. What were some of your takeaways from our conversation with Professor Adele Reinhardt's? I could listen to Adele talk um, all day about lots of things, but uh, in particular, Jesus films. And so it was just great uh, to hear her bring up, you know, films I I hadn't thought about in a while or some films I haven't even heard of. (laughs) Um, And so that was uh, just uh, wonderful. And I think particularly thinking about not just how people are depicted, but, you know, what that actually says about the director and about kind of the political atmosphere that they're being created in. And, you know, our res- the responsibility of us as viewers to be really critical and our responsibility as viewers to be aware of those social and political factors that go into making these films and at times be critical of them. As always, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or you can visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And if you'd like to leave us a, a rating and review, that would be fantastic. And with that, here's our conversation with Professor Adele Reinhardt. Well, Professor Reinhardt, it's so wonderful to have you back on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be back. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So we're really excited to talk especially about the representation of Jesus's enemies and foes in Jesus films. Uh, But I thought before we get started, um, since you were uh, named by Richard Walsh in our conversation with him, uh, he said that um, your description of the genre of Jesus films is right, but also completely wrong. Uh, And I'm I'm, I'm curious, I'm curious if you could maybe set the record straight or at least address uh, this idea of Jesus as uh, Jesus films as biopics. Well, I'm now I'm curious as to why Richard Walsh thought it I was completely wrong. I guess I could just ask him. <laughs> well, he was he was saying that that uh for for him they're not merely biopics or strictly rooted in bio by the genre of, of a biopic that they kind of stem more from a context of worship. That was kind of something he was stressing. Oh, okay. Well, that's something that can be talked about. Well, I think I would still hold, of course, (laughs) by my initial classification of these films. Of course, many films belong to multiple genres. It's not always that easy, right, to, you know, be very strict about the genre classification. And I'm not sure that there's a value to doing it. I think it's more interesting and more true to the art form of cinema 
to think about the different genres that a film could belong to and what it might take from those different genres. And some of the most interesting films are those that straddle genres anyway. But I think that the biopic is a useful genre framework for Jesus movies, not exclusively so. I wouldn't say that you cannot analyze them, you know, as emerging from liturgy or somehow connected to worship. I just found that for my purposes, because I was really interested in characters and plot structure, that the that the Jesus movies really fit into the biographical film by uh, taking a source, considering that source to be historical, no matter what scholars might say about the Gospels, the movies take take the, uh, by and large, take the Gospels as historical sources. But then they do what all biopics do, which is they amplify, they fill in the gaps, they have to create visuals and uh, dialogue, often where none exists, and setting. And so they're amplifying in those sorts of ways. They add characters, <clears throat> they amplify characters, they add subplots, uh, and so on. And, and the general structure, and this is what I found very interesting in reading about biographical films and the narrative structure of biographical films, it seemed to me very clear that the Jesus movies were following that same structure, and uh, which includes a trial scene at the end and opportunities for the protagonist to make speeches about, you know, how great they are and and um, all the uh, reasons that they're being unjustly convicted, for example. And so you've got all that in the, in the Jesus movies as well. Of course, you've got trials in the Gospels too. So we don't have to see the trial scenes in the Jesus movies as necessarily reflecting the biographical film structure. It's just nicely coincidental that you've got um, the ancient narratives in the modern movies kind of coalescing on this. But I still think it's worthwhile to look at it that way. Um, and one of the things then that it, that that it, uh, draws our attention is uh, the role of romance in these films. So in a biographical film, you'll almost always have romance. So even, for example, I would say the Ten Commandments also, in some respects, can be seen as a biographical film that really focuses on Moses. And that adds that whole element of the romantic triangle between Moses, uh, Ramses, and this fictional, you know, Egyptian princess Nefertiri, and so you, and then in the Jesus movies, it's hard to do that because of the nature of the uh, Hollywood Jesus. You know that Jesus has to be presented in certain ways, but some films manage to do it nonetheless. So I still think it's a worthwhile category. Now, in terms of uh, this, is completely not on the topic that you wanted me to talk about. But it's an interesting topic, so I will continue. So Richard's suggestion that we take this, take these films as coming out of a worship context—that's an interesting one. Uh, from a film history perspective, Jesus movies arose out of the passion play tradition, and the passion play tradition itself comes out of a liturgical context, uh, uh, Easter. And so in that sense, you know, I, I would 
agree with him, except I think it's a second order type of relationship to worship, not in the first instance, but as an outgrowth of the passion play uh, tradition. But that doesn't preclude the possibility that it's also a biopic. And I guess he he um, acknowledges that by saying that I'm both right and I'm also completely wrong. So that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that was basically the heart of it. That, and that's a, that's a great, great response. You know, films do straddle multiple genres, like you say. And and in that, as you as you talked about, what the biopic does is it kind of develops characters in some interesting ways, perhaps beyond the source material. I think that's a great transition to this conversation about the foes of Jesus in particular, because certain ones definitely get developed in some fascinating ways beyond what's uh, provided in scripture, because in, in, in some ways, it's not a lot there in the Gospels. Uh, I thought maybe talking specifically about Judas might be an interesting place to start. You know, we, we don't get a lot about this person in terms of his motivation, for example, for betraying Jesus. We do get the development of the idea that he was uh, in charge of the money, he was the treasurer, and perhaps that had something to do with why he'd be interested in 30 pieces of silver, etc. But the Jesus films do a lot with Judas, and, and there's kind of a, a bit of a trajectory over the course of the last century of Jesus films. I wonder if you could speak to some of that. Uh, sure. So uh, Judah, is, yes, it's true that we do have material about Judas in the Gospels. We don't have a lot. What we have is intriguing. And it's intriguing because he's one of the few characters that actually um, changes. He's a disciple of Jesus. And then he betrays Jesus. And then there's the kiss at the uh, arrest and the arrest scenes. And then there are the notes of his uh, suicide uh, in Matthew and in Luke. So you've got an interesting character there who changes his, seems to change his mind, who seems to be motivated by uh, money. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. And then profound regret. So all of that actually provides some pretty good uh, fodder for filmmakers, much better than most of the other characters. The only characters that a filmmaker can really do much with are Mary Magdalene and Judas. Those really are almost always the most interesting characters in any Jesus movie um, because they undergo change, at, at least in, in uh, terms of Christian tradition. Um, and um, they're not enveloped by the kind of sanctity that Jesus is enveloped in. So you can take some uh, you can portray them in, in multi-dimensional ways. And that's what happens with Judas as well. So, I mean, often he's seen as a kind of a straightforward, a greedy character. Sometimes the presentations shade into the anti-Semitic trope that associates Jews and money. And some of the, some of the films will go there. Uh, maybe not as explicitly as that, but certainly implying that by really focusing on his conversations with Caiaphas. I'm thinking now, I think it's the Zeffirelli movie, uh, the conversations with Caiaphas and the amount of focus on the money and, and you know, there's a, the throwing of the money and all kinds of things around that, drawing attention to that anti-Semitic trope without actually um, uh, naming it as, as such, I suppose. But then you've got other sort of sympathetic presentations. I have to say that my absolute favorite presentation of Judas is in Scorsese's film, The Last Temptation of Christ. 
It's really, really brilliant. And it's brilliant in the casting and it's brilliant in um, the way that the character is developed. So you've got Harvey Keitel, right? Got red hair. <laughs> and so the red hair plays an important role in that movie because of the association of red and red hair with um, Satan. Of course, spoiler alert, you only find that out at the, at the end. The movie's been out for so long that I don't think I need to warn about spoilers. <laughs> but in any case, um, and the role of fire and all these things. So the red hair has, um, has a role. And in fact, I believe also in medieval art uh, that Jews were often represented uh, with red hair, which was seen as demonic in some way. And so you've got Judas, whose name itself um, kind of conjures up Jews, Judeans, um, then being associated with red hair. This is iconography from uh, medieval and early modern art. So that's also very artful <laughs> on the part of the, the filmmakers. But the interesting thing is the closeness in the relationship between Jesus and Judas in that movie. And you have a kind of a not very subtle subplot that's homoerotic, not homosexual, but homoerotic. You've got on the one hand, Mary Magdalene, furious with Jesus her whole life because he won't have sex with her, or he won't marry her, or whatever the background there actually is. And he really refuses physical intimacy with her uh, until the dream sequence at the very end of the movie, but in, in sort of in the real life, in his real life within the movie, he refuses that. And yet he's very close with Judas. They, there's a scene in which they sleep kind of nestled next to each other and he's very, uh, he's more open with Judas as far as his own doubts and his own aims and so on are concerned, his fears. And um, so that's really fascinating. And in that movie, you actually, of course, you have Judas in the end sort of betraying Jesus. But Jesus betrays Judas as well. Because Jesus has persuaded Judas that he needs to die on the cross in order to fulfill the divine mission. And then he ostensibly comes down off the cross. And Judas is furious with him, that he has betrayed him, that Jesus has betrayed Judas by leading a normal domestic life with partners and children. It's really brilliant. And that's really, I, I think, what's, what's so wonderful about that movie. And it develops Judas in a particular direction, accounting for the betrayal in a way that doesn't betray the relationship between them. Uh, so I find that really interesting. Another film that's similar to that um, is Jesus Christ Superstar, which also has a love triangle basically between Jesus, Mary Magdalene and Judas with both Judas and Mary Magdalene kind of competing for Jesus' attention. And there too, you have Judas as the moral center of the film. 
as the one who calls Jesus to task for not living up to Judas's own expectations of him. And so that's also really very interesting. So is Judas Jesus' enemy there? I don't, I don't know. And I'm not sure that Judas is Jesus' enemy, even in the Gospels. I mean, he betrays him for reasons that we, we cannot really discern. And then this, this note about the kiss is very intriguing. Why identify Jesus that way? Jesus had already done all his stuff at the temple and overturned the money changers tables and so on and so forth. And we don't get the impression really that he's unknown to the authorities. And yet he needs to be identified. And why is he identified that way with the kiss? I don't know the answer to that. But I think that's what opens up the possibility for some of these cinematic interpretations of Judas in terms of his um, feelings towards Jesus. We've talked about, um, you know, your favorite depiction of Jesus, and we, you've talked about, you know, some of the more kind of anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish depictions. What is a film that doesn't do either of those? Not either. It's not super, it's not kind of racist and it's not great. It's just weird and silly. What is the weirdest one? The weirdest depiction of mm -hmm. Judas you've seen, if you can recall one or the one that maybe just struck you as just. Nope, whatever it is, it's just not that. Well, I, I'm not really sure because I think that, you know, the weirdest one is probably Scorsese's. Um, if if I haven't talked about it, it's probably because it's boring. I, I think the only ones that are interesting are the ones that kind of raise all the red flags about anti-Semitism and, uh, and the ones that kind of develop it, develop the figure of Judas in surprising ways. So I think what's surprising about Judas in the films that I mentioned is that they portray his, the betrayal, not as a betrayal, but as something that was necessary in order for Jesus to fulfill the mission. So the ones that just do it kind of straight, you know, those are the ones that are boring. And so I don't remember them. You might want to cut this out of the podcast. <laughs> But I think but, I think that's helpful because I think that's the beauty about film is that it, it allows another avenue to think around these texts, to think around these stories. Right. And you're right, that the ones that we can't remember are the ones that probably did it as straight and boring as possible. That's right. I mean, that I think that's really true. That that's true of all of the of every element of these films. And and this is why in in, in some ways, you know, the figure of Jesus is the most forgettable because he's also the one that you can do the least with. And the films that are memorable and that were also controversial are the ones that um, uh, took the figure of Jesus in surprising ways. So like Scorsese, for example, mm -hmm. which showed a kind of tormented Jesus who doesn't really figure out who he really is or come to terms with who he really is until the crucifixion. Mm -hmm. Also in your uh, career and over what you have three, four books on Bible and film, you've written on a lots of film. So yeah, could, four, I, I guess, think yeah. our listeners can forgive you for not being able to call up every film you've watched <laughs> on this subject. Well, yeah, especially because I haven't watched most of these Jesus movies for about 20 years. So, yeah. 
what, one of the things about Judas in the Jesus films that I find super interesting, and and some of some of this is tied up with Scorsese's representation in the Last uh, Temptation of Christ, is this kind of trajectory, uh, this kind of development of Judas as somebody who's very sympathetic to the zealots or somebody who runs adjacent adjacent yeah. to the zealots. So um, you know. Going going back to like DeMille's King of Kings, you don't get this at all. You just get kind of a real straight uh, Judas. Like when he talked about the anti-Semitic tropes with his kind of dealings with Caiaphas, that's all there, I think, in DeMille's um, King of Kings. So in in the King of Kings that came out in the 60s, so not DeMille's, you, I think this is the first film, I could be wrong, but I think this is the first film where you start to see Judas really adjacent to the zealots. And from there, this kind of tradition d- develops that Judas is somebody who is really sympathetic towards their concerns and that this kind of explains why he betrays G- Jesus. And, and like you said, it ends up not really being a true betrayal. It ends up being a kind of, um, uh, you know, back up, backs up against the wall. Let's let's force Jesus to act to to start that violent revolt that we're all anticipating. And you see it in the most recent um, depiction of Judas in the Mary Magdalene film, um, where he is sympathetic to the zealots. He's very hopeful that that this is going to um, bring about the the final revolt and revolution against Rome. Um, and 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 that depiction of Judas is is phenomenal. But um, yeah, I'm just curious about this idea that that you know obviously this is an imaginative way to fill out his motivation um but do you think there's any currency in biblical scholarship of judas's you know adjacency to the zealots um okay that's a really good question i have a a few things to say about that um king of kings uh from 1961 was nicholas ray george stevens did the greatest story ever told i just checked that and the king of kings is a demille film king of kings is the uh, nicholas ray film so um, yes, and thank you for reminding me about the Mary Magdalene a movie. Now I remember um, that that was a, a theme there. And it's also a, th- a theme in the Scorsese movie as well. So this is my hypothesis about that. Um, so the film, I think that we, we start having the theme of the zealots and revolt against Rome in the epics. That is the films that were made in the 60s, 50s and 60s, but in terms of the Jesus movies, it's the uh, 60s and onwards. And so the epic films, we've got other Bible epics as well, Ten Commandments, uh, you know, there are dozens of them. And then there are very many epic films that are not uh, biblically based, uh, Spartacus and uh, the Westerns are also uh, in there too. So in in the the epics were big in every way. And so that included uh, big in terms of characters' motivations. So you couldn't any, in in those films, you'd have much less emphasis on, you know, personal affection or personal dislike or personal greed. Um, You'd have to set it in a much bigger framework. In those films as well, those films place Jesus coming in the context of Roman imperialism. And so there's, um, for example, the beginning of the greatest story ever told. Um, and there, this theme is there in King of Kings as well. You have the idea, you know, in the greatest story ever told, you've got the, uh, the opening scenes, uh, a long voiceover. And while you're listening to the voiceover about the oppression of the Romans and the heavy taxation and the people crying out for a savior, 
You've got hundreds of Roman soldiers on horseback, you know, riding into these villages and killing people and demanding their sheep and donkeys and all, all of these things. And so you get this setup where, you know, Jesus is the Messiah who has come to save the Jewish people from Roman oppression. But then the filmmaker can't follow through on that because historically speaking, it didn't happen. So um, all kinds of other things develop and it turns out that he didn't really mean a political kingdom, he meant a spiritual kingdom and so on and so forth. But this allows for Judas then to be the one who kind of exemplifies that um, commitment to revolution. And so there's the attachment to then attaching him to the zealots who are a group that we know about um, primarily from Josephus. Josephus talks about them as the Sicarii, these um, kind of guerrilla fighters who had these knives hidden in their robes and would go around, you know, stabbing people and who were part of, you know, according to Josephus anyway, um, one of the forces leading to the, revol the revolt against Rome in the 60, that started in 68. And so you can associate Judas with that and then you can provide a plausible motivation, either to say, well, you know, you need somebody to start things off. I think this is how it is actually in Scorsese. Um, so Judas can start things off in the hope that Jesus will come in and, and spark this revolt. Or as in some of the other films, a kind of disappointment that Jesus didn't do that. And so turning against him because he actually disappointed those political expectations. So, but I, I would attribute it really to, a, to that broader need to set this in a very broad um, context. And remembering also that these movies were done during the Cold War period. And um, DeMille is up front at the beginning of Ten Commandments is saying that the story of Exodus um, we can take lessons for that uh, uh, in our present time, you know, the 1950s with the red menace and communism and so on. Um, I think that is there also in the films done, the Jesus movies done in the 60s, even though they're not as explicit about it. So the idea that, you know, you've got America, you know, symbolized by Jesus going to stand against, you know, the forces of evil, in other words, communism. Um, and um, that's what Jesus stands for, sort of uh, uh, standing up for that. So even though he didn't succeed in his own time in overthrowing oppressive Roman Empire, um, America kind of fulfills that mm -hmm. <laughs> by Amen. standing strong against communism. So that's what I think is going on in those movies. Unfortunately, he couldn't be Canadian. I mean, that would probably make... You know, so much what better. can I say? <laughs> America always, you know, sort of overshadowed Canada. And maybe, maybe that was maybe one day good for us as Canadians. To <laughs> but there is a really great Canadian Jesus film, Jesus oh, of Montreal. Absolutely. 
And maybe we should talk about the depiction of Judas in that film. I mean, it's sort of maybe quasi Judas slash John the Baptist. You know, you have the the friend of Daniel um, who is a, an actor along with Daniel. Um, and at the very end, you know, when Jesus, uh, the, the, well, when Daniel um, has that, you know, head injury and starts spouting off, you know, stuff from the Olivet Discourse, uh, and he's kind of laying there lifeless. We see that 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 guy. I forget his name. Oh, but, John the Baptist. Yeah, but he's the, John the Baptist. Well, he's well, actually John the Baptist. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting because we see his his head. So you kind of get this yeah. idea of this like severed head, like from John yeah. the Baptist. But he seems to play kind of both roles in some way because he's the he's the sellout, right? He's so so in terms of yeah. the in terms of the ideology of the film, right? Jesus represents like pure theater, right, or something like that. Yeah. Um, up against here's this sellout who becomes this major yeah. uh, actor. Well, I, I would add another element to that. If you remember at the end of the film, of course, yeah, the John the Baptist figure, I mean, it's so, that's also so brilliantly done. If you remember the first scene of the movie, uh, uh, after the, uh, the first scene of the movie is, is the play, a Dostoevsky um, play. Um, and then as the, uh, where the character who plays the John the Baptist figure um, is, is the lead. And as they're walking out of that, the woman who's in advertising says, I want his head. I want his head for my advertising campaign. <laughs> of course, you're just thinking John the Baptist. And then, if, and then you see it at the end in the subway station. But think about what happens um, after Daniel slash Jesus dies. There's that conversation with the lawyer who represents Satan in that film. So in an earlier conversation, which represents, you know, Jesus meeting Satan in the, in the desert, they go up, they're having drinks on the top of the skyscraper and looking out over the city of Montreal. He says, basically, all this can be yours. And Daniel, you know, rejects all of that. At the end, after Daniel dies, the, that lawyer figure, uh, Mr. Cardinal, Cardinal, is talking to the four actors, the two men and the two women, about the theater that he wants to establish in Daniel's name. Of course, it'll be a commercial theater, but it doesn't have to be a sellout. It can still be true to Daniel's ideas. And Mireille, the woman who plays the Mary Magdalene figure, walks away. She understands that this is completely contrary to what Daniel would have wanted, but the two men stay. And they are about to agree to it. So I would see them really as the Judas figures because they're selling him out. And they're selling him out inadvertently, you know, not at showing that they really didn't understand what he was about after all that. So I would see them as the Judas figures there because they're the ones who are allowed, they're really betraying the vision that he had. Now, um, you know, and you've written about the depiction of of Satan uh, in Jesus films, and I think for many people, um, especially when it comes to Jesus films, Satan's not nor that's not normally what people would think of when they think of Jesus films. But he's he is in lots of them, and I wonder if you could just say more about the different ways uh, Satan has been depicted. Well, he, he's not um, always prominent in the films. That scene isn't always depicted. And if it's depicted, it's not always depicted with great emphasis. 
Um, I'm just thinking of a couple of examples where it is depicted. Roger Young's Jesus. Yeah, that's right. He that's right. He's this cloaked, this black cloaked figure, almost. Uh, it, and he shows up periodically, doesn't he? He shows up periodically, and he engages in conversation with Jesus. So he's almost a sympathetic figure in that sense, is what I recall. And he's he's also uh, initially a woman in a red dress. So he's right. kind of shape-shifting. Right, he's shape-shifting. Of course, that reminds me of the Satan figure in uh, Mel Gibson's terrible movie, where it's also, I don't know if shape-shifting is right, but more like an androgynous figure um, with a vaguely female appearance with a very masculine voice and completely unsettling actually. And then at one point carrying a baby that turns out to be a demon baby with this horrible face. So that's kind of hinting at the dark forces that underlie all of that. Um, another film where there's an interesting a Satan figure is in um, uh, Son of Man, the uh, South African film, where you've got him appearing in various ways in the slaughter of the innocents at the very, well, the slaughter of the young of the school children at the very beginning of the film. And then he shows up periodically with a cane that has a cloven hoof. Um, he's there at the death of Jesus. And so, um, and he's quite, you know, representative of other figures that are there in the film of the political um, background to the film. And, and in that film, uh, it opens with the temptation scene of that's Jesus right. basically it casting opens with Satan the temptation down. Scene. Yeah, that's right. which is fascinating. And so, I mean, so he's a prominent figure there, also recurring. So I think that some of the films that are most interested in Satan will have him recurring at various points, not just limited to that uh, point at, at the very uh, beginning. And then in Scorsese's film also, Satan is a very interesting figure, uh, especially at the end. And the various signals around, you know, the snakes and the hissing that you find in, in, in different scenes, just a, you know, a few little hints here and there in the soundtrack. And then at the end with the girl with the red hair, becoming Satan or revealing herself to be uh, Satan. So uh, there's what to do uh, with that figure as well. And I suppose, you know, like Judas, one has a certain amount of freedom as to how to portray the figure, how to, uh, whether to downplay or play up the importance of that, uh, of that figure. There's also that, and um, I don't think it was, wholly intentional but it couldn't have been wholly unintentional either but there was that uh i think it's in the son of god uh the bible miniseries film oh, yeah. that satan just looked a bit too much like obama uh so <laughs> much so right. that they had they decided to cut it uh cut the character in the scene from the film because they just didn't want any of the drama yeah, actually that was really terrible a lot of people commented on that uh, uh. I thought that the version I saw of that actually had him there. I think he's in the miniseries that he's then not, later became yeah, part of. They became the movie. I only saw the movie, though. I didn't see the miniseries. 
I yeah. can't remember now because I saw clips, of course, when, you know, when this came out yeah. as a scandal, I saw the clips, so now I can't remember. But uh, yeah, that was very striking. It can't have been uh, accidental. And of course, that just proves the point that these movies are really about the present, the present time of the filmmaker. And um, that if you know something about the context, it's not just that they're simply taking the gospel stories and doing something with it. They're also reflecting on their own often political environment, just like, you know, DeMille at least was upfront about it at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Most of the films are much, or they try to be more subtle, even if they don't succeed in, uh, in being subtle. So um, we've touched a little bit on some of the anti-Semitic tropes um, surrounding uh, the demonic, uh, you know, the red hair, you know, and we just talked about the how, how the last temptation of Christ has that little girl with red hair and that's, you know, Satan and, 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 and some of these different tropes. Transitioning to uh, how the Pharisees are represented in Jesus films, which is probably where we see, you know, the bulk of a lot of anti-Semitic tropes. Um, you know, probably the worst example that comes to my mind is Godspell and that Pharisee monster uh, that that comes out. Uh, I, I'm just curious, um, what in the world was that all about? Well, actually, I didn't mind the Pharisee monster very much. I really didn't. I saw that as better than a lot of other representations, because at least it wasn't actually a Pharisee, and there was nothing Jewish about him. It's just a monster. It's a, like a robot. So, um, of course, he has the lines of the Pharisees. Uh, you know, the script, but you know, I, I didn't think that that was too bad. And I, I would, uh, I, you know, I don't know what the motivation was for portraying it that way, but that's one of the films that actually has very little anti-Semitism in it because it's not really a narrative. It's really just all of them frolicking in uh, New York City, Central Park and uh, dramatizing comedically uh, the parables and showing off all the different genres of music, you know, so I, it, it wasn't, so I didn't, um, I actually thought that that wasn't too bad. I know that others have interpreted it very negatively. Maybe Richard also uh, has a negative interpretation of that, I believe, but I didn't see it that way. It didn't strike me that way. And I prefer to have a monster there as an enemy in this clearly fantastical, you know, not at all realistic uh, sort of scenario than to have the Pharisees as actual characters in most of the other films. Hmm. I, I appreciate that perspective. It still, it still troubles me when I watch that sequence, but I, I appreciate that, that perspective. Uh, but how about the representation of their teachings? Um, so for example, one, one that comes to mind um, is actually uh, the 1916 film Intolerance uh, by oh, Griffiths, you yeah. know, because it basically, it basically compares the Pharisees with the contemporary women's uh, temperance movements, you know, and and sort of basically, there's a moment where it describes this women's movement as equally intolerant Pharisees of another age. Uh, I'm just curious if you could kind of speak to this kind of sort of pattern of representing the Pharisees teaching in a particular way. Yes, yeah, so that movie, 1916, some consider that to be uh, D.W. Griffith's attempt to respond to the negative comments about his earlier film, Birth of a Nation, which was, 
racist, um, uh, vile, really vile. And so um, he he protested that assessment of the movie by doing a movie about called intolerance. <laughs> Where I think what he was saying was that other you know people were showing intolerance of him, but it also allowed him, of course, to vent his spleen about the uh, temperance movement and prohibition and all, all of that. So there he shows the Pharisees and the Pharisees only as Jesus' enemies, and I'm not sure that it focuses so much on the teachings as on the very person of the Pharisees and their association with legalism. That's really what it's, uh, you know, that they're out to spoil everybody's fun. They're out to just uh, self-aggrandize them, uh, engage in self-aggrandizement and uh, to keep the letter, not the spirit of the law. And this is very much in line with, you know, interpretations primarily Protestant interpretations of the of uh, rabbinic Judaism, what became normative Judaism as legalistic works righteousness based on Luther's interpretation of Paul. Anyway, all of that is, is there. And so in that film, though, originally, uh, this is a film that intercuts four storylines. And originally, what he refers to as a Judean story, which is the story of Jesus, was supposed to be a lot longer than it actually is. It actually, the story of Jesus occupies very little, only about uh, 12 minutes or so of the film. And that's because he cut a lot of it out um, on the advice of his advisors. Uh, he had a whole long sequence about the crucifixion. I can only imagine, you know, the trial and crucifixion, what, what that might've been like, but he cut it. But what he left in were the various scenes with the Pharisees. So you have Jesus, going to the wedding at Cana and having a drink. <laughs> and the Pharisees are looking through the door and uh, commenting about him as, you know, isn't that terrible how he's uh, drinking? And then there's, you know, Griffith's comment or the intertitle uh, talks about them as, uh, you know, not allowing anybody else to have any fun. Uh, and then he has this little comment about how some of them were hypocrites. Not all of them were hypocrites, but some of them were hypocrites. So again, you know, you see that he's trying to address uh, various um, complaints. Uh, the worst scene in that movie, though, I think, is the scene where you have two Pharisees wandering around in the uh, marketplace, wearing their long fringes and wearing their phylacteries, what they're called, uh, tefillin, and uh, uh, reciting part of the morning prayer and thanking God for making them better than other people. Of course, which is a line, I think, from the Gospel of, of Luke. But, you know, highlighting that really focuses on the Pharisees as arrogant hypocrites. I mean, and that's that's the portrayal that we have. And so he opposes that. It's not really that he shows them as doing Jesus in because he doesn't have those scenes but that Jesus represents what Griffith sees as the, you know, one should enjoy life. It's okay to have a drink. It doesn't, you know, uh, versus those that are like those um, women in the modern story of the film that are very harsh and uh, punitive and um, temperance minded. So I think, um you know, for very obvious reasons, many of the uh, directors of these films 
are not Jewish, uh, again, for very clear reasons. But I wonder, what do you think about, you know, if, they, if they're not as careful as they should to depict Jews uh, within the first century or or Jewish belief now or whenever, if they're not, if they don't really care that much um, to depict that accurately. What do you think, I wonder if you could talk a bit about how they have depicted non-Jewish characters or Gentiles, or maybe even kind of maybe like the Simon of Cyrene, you know, he could be Jewish, but are they, or is he depicted in a more Gentile fashion and what that might say about filmmaking and what it might say about the individual filmmakers? Oh, that's a good question. I hadn't really thought about that. So there are, well, you know, the, the non-Jewish characters who stand out are Romans. Simon of Cyrene, I don't really know what he would do. He's of such a minor character in most of these movies. And um, he's a sympathetic character. So I'm I'm not sure what we could generalize from that. But I would say this, that in the, in the Bible epics in general, and this is true um, in what I've called the, you know, the sword and sandal movies and in um, uh, Old Testament movies and in the Jesus movies, by and large, the Gentile characters are portrayed either as completely wrongheaded because they're atheist and atheist is bad, you know, for these movies, or they're sympathetic and on their way to becoming Christians. And so you've got the John Wayne character <laughs> at the end of, I think it was um, the greatest story ever told. Uh, uh, so surely this man was the son of God. A anyway, that's, that's kind of one of those classic uh, things. And, and Pilate is either portrayed as a really horrible person or as someone who's really sympathetic to Jesus and maybe himself on the way to some sort of uh, faith experience. So that's normally how they are presented. And there's a real polemic in these movies between religion and atheism, or what really we should say, Christianity and atheism. And again, I think we have to understand this against the background of the Cold War. That these are that this was really what communism represented was atheism, um, which becomes, you know, so somehow Christianity becomes identified with capitalism, which is an interesting <laughs> phenomenon. But um, in any case, so the so the uh, pagan or Gentile characters are portrayed as uh, rational, atheist. Uh, interested in science, and somehow that's bad. Those are bad things because what you should be is driven by faith and, um, you know, Christian faith. So I think that that's what we see in the Gentile characters as well in, um, in the Jesus movies. And it's really mostly Pilate and sometimes a centurion or, you know, some of his uh, the people that are around Pilate. Hard not to think about Monty Python. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> Romans and Monty Python. 
that is a great pilot. Um, I also love that David Bowie plays pilot. Uh, (laughs) uh, But, but uh, a character that immediately jumps to mind that, that fits in um, the, the pattern that you just described is Lucius in uh, King of Kings. He's the, he's, he's the Roman um, guard. uh, He was there, he was there for the slaughter of the innocents. And then he's finally the one in the end who says, you know, truly this is the son of God. Uh, Just, just fascinating kind of pursuit of Jesus throughout the course of his life. And then finally finding him on the cross I, I i mean totally you know imaginative but um really fits into what you're describing because i i right. believe he even uses the term atheist or he says something like i don't believe in god or something yeah like that's that. right yeah it's it's really quite explicit it's not even it's not even that that part is very clear in all of these movies you have it also in uh the sword and sandal movies i don't know if, i forget which one now but uh you know the robe and i think it's in the robe actually how is the character going to recover? Is it going to be through science or through faith? Are the doctors going to help or is accepting you know, faith in Christ going to help? So, and he's tormented, you know, these characters tormented by what they saw on the, on the, on the cross. So you've got that. Um, but again, I think it, it reflects the, um, you know, the, the red menace as it was called. Uh, in those days and the association of communism with atheism. How do you think that's changed, um, you know, after the fall of the wall and it's changed in the new millennium? Is there another kind of not so hidden boogeyman that's behind all these newer Jesus films or is that transitioned at all or? Well, I'm, I'm not sure. There haven't been so many since then, if you think about it. Right. If the, you think about communists falling in, you know, in the 1991, you know, that that era, there have only been a handful of mainstream Jesus movies since that time. And they're all quite different from each other. So I'm not sure, you know, what, you know, whether we see a pattern emerging. We don't have that pattern anymore, but, you know, you still have, I have to say, well, I, I, in American I, culture, this kind of, There is an element in American society that is distrustful of science. We've seen it in the last couple of years, right? Of science and medicine. To put it mildly. (laughs) To put it mildly, right? And that often lines up with people who who define themselves um, as a certain type of Christian. So I'm not sure that that's, I think that that might've persisted. I think that for the epics, you've, uh, you know, that the communist situation um, or the Cold War situation underlies that portrayal in the epic movies. But it, but it's also a strand within American society that is still there. Yes, I'd be willing to say that, you know, maybe if, if, it, if it has shifted at all, you know, I think a shift to more Islamophobia or or at least maybe the flip side of that is trying to do the best to cast Middle Eastern actors or cast people from from uh, Israel or something like that, uh, that that's become more of a, a trend more recently. And then obviously we talked about another episode about um, Black East, Assassin 33 AD, which is just rife with Islamophobia. We don't have to talk about that, but- um, I haven't seen it, so <laughs> it sounds oh, like well. I should give it a miss. <laughs> No, it is. You're you're missing out. No. Oh, I'm missing out. <laughs> it is perhaps I think the best worst Jesus film ever oh, really? made. 
How about I, Jesus Christ Vampire Slayer? Have you seen that? I haven't seen it, but I, I, that's next on my list of oh boy, great I couldn't even films. get through it. it. It all had to do with how loud the crunch was when they bite into somebody's <laughs> neck. A very loud crunch. <laughs> that was um, a really horrible movie. <laughs> so maybe to kind of land a plane, thinking about um, you know the audience when it comes to the audience you know how are us as viewers implicated in these uh films uh in their depiction of of um jesus's enemies and friends how are we as the audience uh implicated in those well i guess it depends on how we situate ourselves with respect to those movies so movies in general, um, Hollywood movies, let's say, try to create a situation where you identify with certain characters, right? And so for the time that you're in the movie, you are, uh, you're viewing everything through the lens of the camera, which is what the filmmaker uh, wants you to see. And so that's the perspective that you have. And so audiences will often just adopt that perspective, right? And so if you're watching a Jesus movie, your one's tendency would be, even for somebody like me that's not a Christian, to identify with Jesus as the main character, to be sympathetic to him and to the characters who are sympathetic to him in the film, and then to be hostile to the figures in the film that are hostile to Jesus. I think that's part of the danger of these films when it comes to the representation of Jesus' enemies as Jewish characters, as Jewish figures like Judas, but even more so the Pharisees and the priests and Caiaphas and so on. Because the tendency will be to, um, as a viewer to be hostile to the to the figures that are hostile to the hero. You have to resist that perspective actively. So it becomes easy to resist, at least for me, let's say when it came to Mel Gibson's movie because I thought it was so terrible. But we know that a lot of people who went to see that movie were actually completely moved by it. And they really also adopted or you know, experience this experience this tremendous sympathy for the Jesus figure, and therefore also an enmity towards his enemies. So I, th I think that's really how films often work. And even films now, you know, we got a lot of films and TV shows that present anti-heroes, which present also an interesting dilemma for the viewer. And I'm thinking now the a series, uh, The Sopranos, which I think maybe was one of the first that really followed through on this in a very consistent way. Um, it was almost impossible, I think, to, if you were watching this, if you were addicted to this <laughs> series like I was, not to have complete sympathy with Tony Soprano, even though he was clearly a horrible guy <laughs> in so many ways. But this is, a lot of films are messing with us precisely in this way, by setting us up to be sympathetic to the main character, but presenting a main character who is 
ethically problematic or problematic in whatever other sorts of ways. And then we as filmgoers have to have to negotiate that. But the Jesus movies usually don't work that way. They don't work in that complex way. They work in a much simpler way. So they, and in, our, in our, you know American culture, we're also predisposed to viewing Jesus in a sympathetic way anyway, right? We're primed for that. We don't come to these movies without knowing the story ahead of time and without having certain expectations of the story. Perhaps it's the case that the uh, Jesus Christ Superstar is the Jesus film that does this the most the, in terms of the anti-hero? Yeah, that's that's a good point. I think the movie does does do that hmm. uh, because it, it I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's a good example. Maybe the only example hmm. in the Jesus film genre in terms of mainstream Jesus movies. Um, Vampire Slayer. You'll have to see it and let me know what you think. <laughs> <laughs> in any case, in Jesus Christ Superstar, I think that that was an issue. Mm. Um, and it's one reason that I, I really didn't like the film because it was so hard to be sympathetic to that, to the Jesus figure. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Because of the kind of person that he's presented as, but also his voice was so irritating. <laughs> <laughs> and you wonder, what does Mary Magdalene see in him? Like, <laughs> and Judas, like Judas is this great guy. Like, <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Professor Reinhardt, I know we could keep going on and on about, uh, about Jesus films. This has been a delightful conversation and we're just so grateful to have you back on the pod with us. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. It was lots of fun as always. <laughs>